Welcome to the Rekindling Ministries podcast series. This is episode 3.11C. So this is the third sub-episode of this whole evil and sin unpacking that we're doing. And this specific episode is getting into why does evil and sin exist, right? And all the stuff behind that. Uh, And so my name is Shannon Kirkpatrick. And my name is Zach Rios. And my name is Connor Hyde. So if you want to know more about who we are, you can go back and listen to the uh, the first couple episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So we're gonna we're gonna dive in, and the first thing we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna recap A and B, just in case you haven't listened to those yet, or it's been a while, or you, you need a reminder. In episode A, we got into given all of the Hebrew and the Greek and the Scripture, what is the definition biblically of evil and sin? Mm-hmm. And so, evil. There's four different ways that um, the Bible uses evil: worthless, displeasing, detrimental, or immoral. And what we're really focused on in this study is that third one: it's detrimental, we'll, and we'll keep coming back to that. <coughs> Excuse me. Then, the, in the second episode, in B, the previous one, we discussed um, what are the results of sin. So give, oh, I'm sorry, the other definition. So that's evil. Sin, the definition of sin, is a two-part definition. Uh, Sin is primarily a turning away from God and his beneficial goods that he's offering. Mm -hmm. And secondarily, turning to something else that falls outside of his parameters that is detrimental. Uh, And there's a whole lot more we could say on that. You just need to go back and listen to those episodes, right? So that was episode A. And then episode B uh, was, what are the results of sin? So what happens when I turn from God and the beneficial goods he's offering, and I turn to something that's detrimental that falls outside his parameters. And so we walked through, there was six, six results. Um, it results in pleasure, which is why you do it. It results in some kind of detriment to your or another's well-being. It results in some prevention of some beneficial goods. Those are the main three. If you continue in that sin, it's a spiraling down, a hardening of the heart, just everything makes worse. Eventually resulting in physical and or spiritual death, unless you're a believer, then spiritual death is now off the table because mm-hmm. Christ died for you, died for you. Um, and then six, it results in the opportunity for grace and mercy and peace and patience and forgiveness, and all these things to, 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 to result in. And so we discussed the implications of all those um, application of how you can help resist sin with that. So that was in the last section. So now we get into this big discussion of, okay, Shannon, so this, this is cool. I appreciate this. Like, I have a better understanding of what evil and sin is now and what it results in. I'm tracking. I've always had the question, why? If God is so perfect and so good and so loving and he hates sin and he's sovereign and he's in control and all that kind of thing, why does he allow evil and sin? It's been a huge question for me personally, I think for a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I know like one of the questions I always had was, because we know that in heaven, in the eternal kingdom, there won't be any sin. And so it's like, well, God, why, why not just start the first day of heaven, right? Um, and, you know, and we've long heard this thing of, well, at, God created the world perfectly, and then Adam and Eve screwed it up. And ever since then, he's been trying to restore that. I push back on that. I don't think he created it perfectly because if it was perfect, the sin never would have happened. Hmm. So, so what's going on here, right? So this began this whole exploration for me. So anyways, what th- this is known as the problem of evil. Um, and then there's something called theodicies. And theodicies are different 
arguments or defenses of why a good God can allow evil. So this becomes a huge, this is why we, want to go, we wanted to go ahead and create its own kind of sub-episode here that someone can just listen to this and kind of go through it all. So we're, this one may be a long one. Um, and so, we're, so we, you know, us doing what we do with unpackings, we went as thorough and as comprehensive as we can. So we're about to present to you a bunch of things on that. So the first thing um, that we're going to present is kind of explaining the problem of evil and giving the definition or the initial question. Uh, so the question is, why does a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving God allow evil, sin, and suffering? And again, what we mentioned before, suffering is going to be its own episode after this is done. So mm-hmm. we're just focused right now on the evil and sin, but we'll come back to the suffering. So why why does why does he why does he allow it? This is right. This is one of the big questions. People use this as the reason why they're not a believer, you know, et cetera. So, so we wanted to go through this. Um, it's important that we try to think outside the box as we're going through this. And it's important that we're thinking as comprehensively as we can. And we're, we're acknowledging our presuppositions and all that. So just philosophically, I'm not going to go. I have other notes that I've written, and, I, and I'm not going to go on all of them now. But knowing that I want to, here's what I want to say. I want to tackle this as fair as I can. So a lot of times when I'm putting together an unpacking study or I'm putting together a lesson or whatever, I'm thinking about the pushback. I've got, I've got many friends that are not believers, and some of them like are almost like have an animosity right towards towards Christianity, and I get it. Um, but I'm, I think of their voices, and I think of what they might say, and these guys are pretty intelligent. I think of the pushback they might give. Oh, Shannon, you're making that statement, but you're assuming this, right? So I try to think of all those things that I don't want to give a pat answer. I don't want to give a trick answer. Because like, like sometimes I might be able to give like this general answer that I know actually doesn't solve it. But if someone's not thinking deeply, they'll believe it. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't want to do that. So I want to give as thorough and as fair an answer as I can. So, so you'll see as we go through. It's like, why are you going through such detail and such? It's because we're we're trying to be we're trying to take an honest approach to this. Yeah, and I think that as we are being honest, it's worth mentioning that we do have presuppositions here, and we keep on telling you guys to refer back to these other episodes because we really have been making a case all the way leading up to this point why we have this view of why sin and evil even exist because it does your view of uh determinism affects this your view of god's love affects this like there's all of these different factors that really are almost culminating in this discussion uh that we want to recognize that we have really been trying to present a case working our way through all these different issues that leads to this and so we do want to recognize those uh, assumptions or pre, uh, preconceptions and different things as we do go into this discussion. Cool. So with that, um, why does evil and sin exist? So we came up, this is from us reading and us kind of talking it out. We came up with seven potential answers of why there is evil and, and sin and suffering in the world. At, we're not saying we agree with all seven of these, right? We're just trying to, these are all the, the, we're trying to come up with every potential possibility, right? So one possibility, why is there so much evil, sin, and suffering? Possibility number one, there is no God. And so all these evils are just natural evils and man-caused evils, and so they just abound unchecked because there's no God. That's, that's possibility uh, number one. 
the second possibility is God is all evil and all powerful and knowing and thus causes the evil and suffering we experience. Another possibility is that God is all evil and he's also limited in his power and wisdom. And so he causes some of the evil and suffering. And so there's those two kind of sound the same. Possibility number two, he's all evil and all powerful. And so he causes all the evil. Possibility number three, he's all evil, but he's not all powerful. He's just limited in power. So he causes some of the evil and suffering. Why do those nuances? Because, again, we're trying to be as fair and open, as comprehensive as we can. Um, possible answer number four, God is actually a mixture of good and evil. And by the way, when I say God, this could also be God's right? mm-hmm. pagan kind of thing. Anyways, God is a mixture of good and evil. So he's got a good side and a bad side, and he's all powerful and knowing. Thus, sometimes he causes good, sometimes he causes evil. Uh, the fifth option is God is a mixture of good and evil, but he's limited in power and knowledge. And thus he only has some control over things. And then the sixth option is that God is all good, but he's limited in his power and knowledge, and so he can't stop all evil from happening. And then possible answer number seven is God is all good and all powerful and all wise, um, and he chose to allow evil, sin, and suffering. So it was when, we, when we went through the study, Rachel was in our group, and she made a point the first six, any one of the first six would actually explain why there's evil and there'd be no problem. So if there is no God, well, of course evil exists because man does stupid stuff. It would explain it. No sure. problem. Um, if God is all evil and all powerful and he's the one causing the evil. Okay, no problem. That's, that's, that's what's going on. Or if he's all powerful and he's a mixture uh, or he's limited or he's all evil and he's limited in his power, but he still causes some of the evil. Makes sense, no problem. Or God is somewhat good and somewhat bad, and whether he's all-powerful or limited in power, he causes some of that, and he can't stop all of it. It Mm -hmm. would explain it. Or even number six, God's totally all good, um, but he's limited in his power, and so he can't stop it. That would also explain it. So any one of those six, there'd be no problem. I mean, there'd be the problem of the existence of evil, Mm -hmm. but there'd be no problem with why the evil exists. We know why. So Rachel pointed out, only number seven is the problematic one. That's the tough one. That, well, wait, hold on, you're saying that God is all good and all powerful and all knowing. Um, and so it's, it was him choosing to allow this. That's what becomes problematic. What's interesting is all three of us hold the number seven. We believe that the Bible teaches number seven. Most Christians as a whole would agree it's number seven. Mm-hmm. They would say that God is all-powerful, and he is all-good and all-loving and all-knowing. He's always omnicompetence, um, and yet evil still exists. And so this, the problem is, well, hold on. If he is all these omnicompetence, there would be no evil. There is evil, therefore he's not all those omnicompetence, right, is the general philosophy. So we're going to counter that. We're going we're gonna to show you, propose you a theory here of why he can be all these omnicompetence, all good, all knowing, all loving, all powerful, uh, and yet evil still exists, and it makes sense why, right? That, that, that's the goal of all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we, we go into the, the theory, um, we want to recap the interdeterminism. So you were mentioning the presuppositions. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to go through all this now because that's why we did a whole episode on interdeterminism 3.09, right? Yeah. So we, we encourage you to go back and listen to that. But if you just want to kind of push through right now, I'll, just, I'll recap it. So what the recap is of, inter, so 
so determinism is the 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 means by which something occurs or why something occurs what happened you know uh, that a caused b or whatever that's determinism so there are four one two yeah there are four basic camps that one can hold to so what we're talking specifically here is about divine determinism um so what what does god cause right mm-hmm. And we won't go into all this now, but we put all of these refined subpoints. So, for example, there is hard determinism and soft determinism. So, hard is, is irresistible, where soft determinism is more influential. There's also active and passive, and there's also all those different agents. So, there's God, there's angels and demons, there's humans, there's animals, there's nature. Potentially, there's randomity, right? Different theories on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, so we, we, we go, we go in through all of that and we also talk about sovereignty and how sovereignty and determinism is not the same thing. Sovereignty is just that God has the ultimate authority and power to enforce that authority. Determinism is how does he actually use the power, right? So two different issues there. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so all that said, there's, there's four basic camps. So one camp is the atheism camp and the atheism camp says there is no God. And so there is no divine determinism. There's no God plays no role because there is no God. Mm-hmm. The second camp would be basically deism, um, which is the idea that sure there is a God and He kind of set everything up at the beginning, but He's withdrawn Himself now and He's not very active in that. I think Thomas Jefferson actually held to that kind of idea. And so what they would say is sure there is some divine determinism at least initially, like the laws of gravity or whatever, but there's not really any active divine hard determinism now. He doesn't get involved in the affairs of man. That's the second camp. The fourth camp, the other far end of the spectrum, because we draw a spectrum out for this, is that um, pervasive, active, hard, divine determinism. And what that one is, is God determines everything. So God causes everything. So even like right now as I'm talking, my hand's going up and down. Hmm. I'm not choosing that. God is moving my hands up and down, right? So on a spectrum, on a 0 to 100, atheism camp is at 0. The deist camp is like in the, ten, the teens, maybe the 20s. This, this pervasive, active, hard determinism, which is, which is 100, because it's, there is no free will. There is no human agent. There is no angelic agent. At, the all. Only, yeah, yeah. at all. The only agent is God. So everything's robotic, computer programmed, etc. Really, you find some people that hold to that, but it's really hard to even live that out. Yeah. Like the example can't we give is, is it, yeah, it can be consistent because why would you put a seatbelt on if, if everything's already predetermined? So the far majority of, of people, at least believers, hold to that third camp. And the third camp is the interdeterminism. And this is a broad camp that ranges from the 30s up to the 90s. Okay, And so in general, the interdeterminism camp says it's a mix. So there is divine active hard determinism, divine passive hard determinism, divine active soft determinism, divine passive soft determinism, and then the human and angelic and animalistic versions of each of those as well. So it's a mix of all. Within that camp, there's a lot of debate as far as the percentages. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's in the 30s or 40s, they would say there's the occasional divine determinism, but almost all of it would be angelic and human and animalistic. Where if somebody's in the 90s, like low 90s, it's almost all divine determinism with some, a teeny bit of angelic and, and, and human and, and et cetera. And so we talked about how I think you and I, Zach, both are pretty similar stages where we're probably in the 50s where there is definitely divine determinism, like the laws of gravity, and even active in the moment, like miracles. Mm-hmm. But 
well, I can only speak for me, but in general, most of the reason why things happen in life is because man or angels or animals have chosen it. Yeah. Um, now, having said that, I'm not saying that somebody who's in the 80s or 90s is wrong, because also what I believe is God actually runs up and down <laughs> that whole interdeterminism spectrum where, like my friend Alicia, she would probably be in the high 80s or, or low 90s. Um, what I believe probably is God does a lot of, of hard divine determinism acts in her life, and she observes that. That's mm-hmm. why she's concluded high 80s or low 90s. Where for me, God understands like the way I'm the, the way He wired me. I appreciate more of that kind of free will, moral responsibility. So He took a little bit less of a role. So He still divinely interacts in my life, absolutely, but less. And I've observed that less, which is why I've concluded the 50s. And so really, it seems like anywhere in that interdeterministic range, you're fine uh, because maybe that's just how you're observing life and how God's interacting with you. Mm-hmm. So I love that discussion. Yeah. But anyway, so I wanted to recap that real quick because that plays into all of this. Um, anyways, so, so I wanted to recap the interdeterminism. Um, so having said that, now we can move into some of the traditional answers that, that we hear, at least biblically or, or within the church, um, of why God allows evil. And, and then, and I can tell you why I've moved on from them because they they never were satisfactory for me, which is why we're going to get into this whole proposal. Mm -hmm. So one thing I've heard is, so, so why, why is there evil and sin in the world? Answer, because Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into the world. Okay. Romans and Genesis. Um, So then the question is, so why did Adam and Eve sin? And it's usually some somewhere around the idea of um, because they chose to not trust in God or because of pride, you know, or whatever. Um, and so they chose to not obey his commands. Uh, you know, they the, the fruit was pleasing, etc. OK, why did they do that? Why did they have pride? Why did they have distrust? Where did the pride come from? Where the where did the distrust come from? That's really hard to answer, mm-hmm. and I usually don't hear an answer. It's just, well, it's one of those mysteries you know, <laughs> kind of thing where I would start tracing it back to, so the distrust and pride came from somewhere. Because one of the things I've heard is, you know, Adam and Eve were created perfect. I don't hold to that because if, to me, if they were created perfect, they never would have sinned. Hmm. So I do think they, they were created good, and I, and I believe that they were created without the presence of evil, but I believe they were created with the free will and the potential for evil. So to me, that train of thought um, still comes back to, but it seems that God allowed for the potentiality of that sin. Why did he allow for the potentiality of sin to occur? Another answer you might hear is, well, 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 Satan tricked them. Satan deceived them um, and told them, you know, and and misspoke and that kind of deal, and they they fell for it. They were naive, okay? I think there's an element to that too, right? Mm -hmm. Genesis would say that. Um, So then, so why why did Satan do that? Why did Satan deceive them? Well, Satan is evil. Okay. Was Satan always evil? Well, so everyone, I've actually have heard Christians say he was created evil. Well, that brings up the problem because God created him. So God created an evil being. Why would he do that? Or I hear that, you know, kind of the whole idea from uh, uh, Ezekiel or Jeremiah or wherever it is, Isaiah, where, you know, Satan felt, Satan Lucifer was the, one of the angels that sang, oh, jazz, and he fell. And why did he fall? Because of pride, because he wanted to be like God. So then the question is, where did the pride come from? Where did Satan acquire pride? So you either go with, well, God, when God made him, pride was within him, which is kind of saying God put the pride in there, which becomes problematic. Or I don't know. It's a mystery, I guess. So 
when you keep tracing, you know, so the initial answer is that sin, sin occurs in this world because Adam and Eve brought it in the world. Well, technically, that's not even true because Satan sinned before that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you know, what does it mean that, that sin entered the world through one man? It doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that Adam caused it. It's just Adam was the first one to do it, yeah. right? And then it went on from there. Anyways, um, so it always, it always came back to me, man, if you keep tracing back to a why and why and why and why, you always still get back to, in the end, God allowed it. He permitted it. I don't think it, God, because God can't sin, so I don't think God causes sin. Mm-hmm. But the question is, why allow it? Because I believe that God is all-knowing, so he knew ahead of time what was going to happen. So that was still one of those questions of, God, why not start in heaven? If you knew Adam and Eve, were, you know, you gave them that free will, and you knew they were going to choose that, and you hated that, why didn't you prevent that? Why didn't you wire them in such a way that they wouldn't do that, Right. And so these were all questions that I had. And so the traditional answers just never sat well with me. And sometimes you might have someone say, well, Shannon, don't question that. Just accept it. The way my brain works, I'm like, I could, but I don't want to. Like, I want to explore it more because I feel like there's more to the story. And I feel like if I try to actually get into this a little bit, um, I might be able to get a better answer that makes sense to me. Does that make sense to you guys? Mm Mm-hmm. So, so, so that, that's some of the traditional answers. And I realize that some people, they're okay with that. And if they're okay with that, you don't even need to listen to any of the rest of the episodes. Fine. Or you may still listen out of curiosity, but there's others out there that are like, yeah, you know what? I've always wondered that. Let's keep exploring this. So given that, um, we can then move into the, the presentation that we have, this, this theory that we have. And <clears throat> let me start off by saying this. I, I've, I've been taught a lot recently to stop using the phrase, the Bible clearly teaches. And I think it's great advice. Um, the Bible clearly teaches a handful of things, that there is a God who created the world. Jesus is the, is the son of that God, the second person of that, that triune God. There's a handful of those things. Other than that, man, we want to say Bible clearly teaches this, but we're bringing in our presuppositions in our own personal opinions. Also, we're all still sinful creatures, so we have distorted thinking. So we want to be careful with saying the Bible clearly teaches. And I agree with that, so I'm, I'm moving away from that kind of language. So I don't want to say, guys, listen, the Bible clearly teaches the theory that we're about to present to you. I can't say that um, because this, this, this issue has been debated for thousands of years, right? Mm-hmm. So if it, clearly, if it clearly taught, there'd be less debate. So what I want to say is this. The theory that we're about to present to you does fit within biblical parameters. It's based on certain presuppositions, and it's based on certain assumptions. It's based on certain um, implied things. Mm -hmm. So if the Bible, I would say, the Bible seems to be implying this, and given that, then this. So I want to totally admit and acknowledge that we're presenting to you a theory that makes sense and fits within the scriptural parameters based on certain presuppositions and, and, and uh, um, implied uh, <coughs> understandings, etc. Um, but I do believe that it fits within biblical parameters. I also believe it is by far the best explanation that I've ever heard for why sin occurs. Now, side note on this, this is not just something, you know, that, oh, Shannon created a theory and then he <laughs> thinks it's the best explanation ever. This comes from a combination of a bunch of sources. 
So it comes from a couple key passages that jump out at me. It comes from, I took a philosophy class. It comes from a number of different philosophers. It comes from other articles and books that I've read on theodicies, on the problem of evil. It comes from certain sermons. It comes from other conversations that I've had with other people. And it comes from different Mm -hmm. insights and assumptions that I've made. So it's a combination of a whole bunch of stuff I've taken here and here and here and try to put it together to form this. So I just always want to be honest. We're we're presenting the theory here. Um, I hope it encourages you. I do hold to this. I do believe this is the way things are. And and we'll get later on in the end to the application. It changes things. It changes the way you approach Scripture and our life and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be able to present it. I know you guys have been encouraged. I'm sure you guys have slightly details different than mine. But but we're all at least in the same page, which is why we wanted to come together and present this. And so I know we were all excited about presenting this this sub episode here. So so at least I want to I want to acknowledge that. Right. So. Given that, let's present to you guys um, the theory. So, Connor, why don't you start for us? Um, so, starting with the theory, uh, I want to go over kind of the, f- the first four points that are with it, and this is kind of understanding why good and evil exist. And the first point is that God is perfectly and inherently good, um, and that's, you know, he's utterly valuable, there's pleasing, beneficial, and right. It's in his essence, in his character, his will, um, his works, um, and so that, that's the first one, um, that God is perfectly and inherently good. Um, the second one is that and God... Did you get the reference that Psalm? Oh, yeah, I didn't reference. So, and that's referenced in Psalm 119.68. Um, the second is God is perfectly inherently loving. Um, and love is biblically defined, uh, Mark 12.30, and we've also talked about it in some mm-hmm. of these previous uh, podcasts, and that's um, the heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so a passionate treasuring and like an affection... Um, of value, valuing something, um, as as we walk humbly in obedience to God, um, also steadily understanding others and patiently forgiving their wrongs, and then actively contributing to others' well-being, desiring that they experience good, and so that that is the second point that God is perfectly inherently loving. Um, the third is there are incredible benefits that come from embracing what is good, and there are multiple passages that. Um, that speak to that, and that's on different levels, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, physically, socially, Um, so emotionally, like a glad heart, joy, internal prosperity, a peace, Um, spiritually knowing truth, uh, fear of the Lord, sanctification, eternal life, Um, intellectually speaks to wisdom and understanding, Um, physically, that's rest, uh, rewards, eternal, and some external, um, and suffering, um, as we talked about um, earlier, the kind of the, the benefits of, of mm-hmm. some of those things. Um, and then also socially, being a salt and light to others, encouraging them to honor God, gaining favor with God and men, um, receiving kindness in return. And so that's the third point, that there are incredible benefits that come from embracing what is good. Um, the fourth is, thus, in his love and goodness, God designed a good, a beneficial world and created us in his image to do good. And so... God does, and these are some of the passages that speak to that are Genesis 1, 27, 30, verses 27 and 31, mm-hmm. um, Ephesians 2, 10. Yep. Um, and that's that God desires that we choose to pursue and experience um, the beneficial and moral goods. And that we've spoken like to some, yeah, all the yeah. beneficial and moral goods, yeah. Um, <coughs> and those are the beneficial things for us, for others um, that fit into his plans. And we've talked about some of this also, but inversely, the prohibitions that he's established. Um, to keep us from the detrimental, um, the detrimental things for us or for others' well-being, and so right. he sets those in place to, to help us avoid that, um, to make sure that we 
um, are pursuing the beneficial things. So that's the fourth one, that his love and goodness, um, God designed a good and beneficial world uh, and created us in his image to do good. Yeah. So, so again, we're trying to persuade you here now. And so we're assuming that God is good and just, mm-hmm. just how you define and God is loving. Um, we could also use just. So yep. if again, we haven't done the unpacking yet, but the biblical definition of justice is desiring and acting toward a making of things right. So, so the theory is that we all agree is that God is good and he's loving mm-hmm. and he's just. Yep. And because of those things, he wants all of humanity to experience beneficial goods and to try to avoid detrimental evils. Yep. Um, so given that, the next point, point five, is that God recognized that this, oh, and, and it, well, yeah, God recognized that this requires irrevocable, significant, limited free will and moral responsibility. And I, we were very intentional when we with put all those, those words. Yeah, with all those words down. So we're, we're going to take a little bit to unpack this a little bit. So um, God knew for it to mean anything that we have to have the ability to choose good or evil, love or hate, obedience or rebellion. God wanted to give us the opportunity and responsibility uh, to choose to pursue what is right. And then he would reward those that choose rightly. So Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20, Ecclesiastes 8, 16 and 17, Luke 18, 18 and 27, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. I'll touch on this. So let me give you, because you, you guys know definitions is an important thing for us, right? Yeah, for sure. So let me give you definitions of each of these points. So we'll start with free will, which is the, the main thing with a bunch of adjectives. Free will is the ability of an individual to choose or make a decision without being forced by another. Now, side note on that, we do believe that the decision can be influenced by other factors. Mm-hmm. So some people hold to a definition of free will. A free will is only free will if there are no influencing factors whatsoever. We would say <clears throat> there can't be any forceful factors as far as making something. The person has to be able to freely choose it on their own. But if it is influenced by other factors, that's okay. It's influenced, but it was still their choice in the end. So this is the whole general idea that a lot of people hold to, that, that for love to mean anything, for obedience to mean anything, it has to be freely chosen. And if there's no free will and we're just programmed to love or obey, then it doesn't mean as much, right? <coughs> Excuse me. So God knew that he wanted man to have free will mm-hmm. um, because he wanted them to choose to love, obey, submit, etc. So that's, that's the free will thing. Um, the free will needs to be significant. So, so for example, this means the legitimate availability of multiple options. So some people would argue that <coughs> if I have free, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. If I have free will, like, so they would say that humans have free will, but humans will always choose evil. Hmm. Um, but it is free will still. It's just they'll always choose evil. What we would say is, sure, that's free will, but it's not significant free will. Significant, because and, and the idea being all they can choose is, is evil. Now, it's still a choice, but it's the only option. Mm-hmm. And so we, we would not hold to that. That's why we add the, the significant free will. And so significant means that if one has free will but can only choose evil, then it's not significant. Significant free will must be able to actually choose between two or more options. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if I say, well, I won't get into all that. Uh, there's a bunch of philosophy behind all that. Uh, but anyway, so we believe that God wanted to give not just free will, but significant free will, which means that we actually do have the option of choosing good or evil. So side note, this shows you how I, I'm not reformed. <laughs> yeah. um, and that I believe that man can choose. Well, 
I actually hold the there's sun even some nuance yeah, to some that. Nuances. Yeah. But, but I do believe that man on his own, God has given man significant free will, meaning that man actually has the opportunity to legitimately choose good or evil. Even if they do have the tendency to choose evil. Right. <coughs> or they're <coughs> influenced by it. Sure. <coughs> man, sorry. Um, so that's significant. We also added limited there, that it's, it's not just free will, it's significant free will. It's not just significant free will, it's limited significant free will. And so we believe that there are constraints set by God on the significant free will. So when he, when, he, when he gave it to us, he didn't give us the ability to choose anything. For example, I can't choose to fly like a bird, right? I don't have the, the physical, physiological makeup It'd be to cool, do that. Though. It'd be cool, though. It'd be cool. It'd be great. Maybe in heaven, right? Uh, but God knew that he had to put some sort of limit on what we could significantly choose on our own. Some people will say, well, that's not free will. No, it's, it is. You still have the ability to choose evil or good. It's just God did put some limits on it because he knew if he put no limits on it, oh, boy, you can imagine the kind of evil <laughs> right, right, that, that we might choose. So in his wisdom, and I agree with him, he puts the limited amount. Because if free will is unlimited and it has unlimited power alongside it, then we, since we aren't all good, will right. abuse that to every extreme. Right. So God knew to establish that. And so all this is because God, who, who freely loves and blesses us, desires that love and obedience is that be freely chosen, not forced. We were just talking about that. So just as God is praised for freely choosing to bestow grace on us, he is pleased when we freely choose to love and obey him and love others, etc. So this means that if God wanted us to freely choose love and obedience, we must also have the equal opportunity to freely choose hate, rebellion, sin, etc. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so we knew that in that significant limited free will, what that means is there is the possibility of evil being chosen. Mm-hmm. Um and and uh, so anyways, and so then that does bring up the predestination of yeah and so there's something interesting here the Greek word for predestination okay. is prutza pruto uh, I don't speak Greek I apologize and that means to limit beforehand figuratively to predestine predetermine or ordain and so there's a whole lot of words there that it's worth uh, defining so predestined means to decree or determine beforehand decree means to command enjoin or determine command means to control or influence. And you can see how we're almost like cascading down this list of right. definitions. Um, but enjoin means to uh, direct or impose with authority or urgent admonition. Direct means to cause or request. Determine uh, means to fix conclusively, to settle, or to set boundaries and limits. Ordain can mean to prearrange uh, unalterably or issue an order. And so it's really interesting as we actually go through these definitions that all of these or what or statements have something that could be very reformed right. or a perspective that could lean much more towards significant limited free will. Mm-hmm. And so uh, just like, for example, um, determine can either be fixed conclusively or set boundaries and so you can see how as you go through because i think a lot of times we like to try and simplify um theology and we're just like well i'll just look up the original language and that will give me the answers i need and i'll have this all figured out but that's it's it's not that simple because when you actually look up this word it actually means that god could either be controlling causing or said or settling all events or 
he could be setting irrevocable limits and then influencing or counseling or requesting others to live within those limits. Mm -hmm. So we have hard determinism. We have more of a soft-ish determinism. Or he could set resistible limits and influence and counsel and request others to live within those. And so there we actually see just through the definitions, the whole spectrum of inner determinism that we talked about a couple weeks right. ago. So, so does God predestine everything? Yes. yes. But what, what does, does that, that mean? mean? <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> right. It could mean this, this, and this. Yeah. So anyways, <clears throat> and then <clears throat> the, <clears throat> sorry, the last adjective here is the irrevocable. And this becomes uh, challenging or controversial, whatever. I do hold to this, but I know people can have a hard time with it. But I, but I feel like it's for this theory to work, it, it, you need to add the irrevocable thing. And so what it is is it's an irrevocable limited significant free will. And what that means there is God has chosen not to override man's free will. Hmm. So meaning that as he set all this up, one of the, he put a limit on himself. He put a constraint on himself. Now, he chose to do this, so he's still sovereign, right? But he chose to put a limit on himself where he says, all right, I'm going to give man this this limited, significant free will to choose whatever, and I will not override it. Hmm. I will not revoke it. So if somebody chooses to cheat on a test, I'm not going to override that. That's their choice. If someone chooses to kill somebody, I'm not going to override that. Right. So there's a risk entailed here, Mm -hmm. and we're going to get into why the risk. But so we're so this is where it can be kind of controversial. Yeah. But here's the deal: it would make sense to me. It it to me it better explains everything mm-hmm. that he put it he put a risk in this and he, and he constrained himself by not revoking it. But that would actually explain why all this stuff happens. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning here that we're not taking a deistic view of God. So we're not saying that he gave us this uh, significant limited irrevocable free will and, and then just s- stepped back uh, because you could hear that and you could say, Oh, so, uh, so God just decided to let us do whatever we want and is just sitting there watching. No, 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 no. He still influences and he's right, still, still working and going back to the inner, dis- uh, the um, uh, inner determinism discussion we had, there still is a percentage of things that he has hard determined. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that we keep all of that in mind that we are not saying that, as a result of these things, God is now uninvolved and he can't and do anything. Control and, because right. that's just a misunderstanding of what we're trying to say. So we really want to emphasize that that's not what we're saying. Uh, that there is, God is still very much involved in this whole process. And he, he really needs to be for all of this to really work out. Yeah. So, so God would say, so listen, there are certain things that I do hard determine, right? And I just set up this parameter and this parameter and this parameter. And so your guys' free will is going to fit within those parameters. Mm-hmm. Also know that in addition to those hard determinism things, I do tons of soft determinism. Mm-hmm. It's very strong soft determinism where I'm whispering to you and I'm nudging you and I'm trying to move you in this right direction. So I'm, I'm trying to influence you heavily. So say for the example that somebody murders somebody, God would say, I, I chose not to, to revoke their free will. So they, they chose to murder that person. Know that I did put certain limits on that. And the entire time I was whispering and nudging mm-hmm. and reaching out to that individual, trying to turn them from that lifestyle constantly involved constantly pursuing them um but up to the point of overriding their free will um because i put myself a limit there and then we're going to get into why god why would you do that 
Um, and part of that is because it seems that significant free will needs to be there for love and obedience to actually mean something. And so it entails that risk, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's the free will part. And then you have the moral responsibility part. I still have a hard time explaining what I mean by this. I have it in my head and in my heart, and it makes a lot of sense to me. So I'm going to try to explain it here. The basic idea is is that God could have done everything, but he chose to delegate some of it to us, which again entails risk because mm-hmm. we may not do it. In fact, most likely we're not going to do it. But he still gave us that moral responsibility. So when I look at, at Job 31, 14, Ecclesiastes 12, 14, Isaiah 6, 8, Mark 12, 28 to 31, Romans 5, 7 to 8, 14, Romans 14, 10 to 13, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 15, Ephesians 2, 10, Ephesians 3, 13 to 21, Galatians 5, 6, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 5, 1 Timothy 1, 5, 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 19, Revelation 2 and 3, and all these other passages. I see God commanding something of something. I'm telling you to go do this, hmm. right? He's putting the responsibility on us. Yeah. He could have done it. He didn't. Yeah. He wanted us to do it. Because another example of that, real practical, is Exodus 3 and 4, where he's he uh, shows himself to Moses. Moses comes by, and he comes up with all these excuses of why he couldn't do what God wanted him to do mm-hmm. and god tries reasoning with him and then eventually says okay if you're not going to do this then we're going to your brother's coming up he's going to go and you're going to go with him right and so we do see instances of this where god decides to actually work within uh human involvement and meet people where they are yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so and <clears throat> we see a bunch in scripture of god telling somebody to do something and then not doing it jonah yeah, yeah. There's all uh, sorts Genesis, of Genesis, a bunch of them yeah and so it's like but well you know if god really wanted it to get done he just would have done it no, he really wanted it done, but he wanted man to do it, or he wanted angels to do it. So again, I believe strongly in this. This is part of this theory of explaining why there's so much evil and such in the world, that God gave man moral responsibility. So this is where the, the biblical concept of justice fits in here. And again, we define it as a making of things right, rather than that, that simple view of justice, which is just rewarding right and punishing wrong that Job and his friends. So when eventually we do a Job study, when we actually go through the justice study, we'll elaborate more on that. But we're moving. So a simple view of justice states, if you do good, God rewards you. If you do bad, God punishes you. And Job and his friends held to that. What we learn in the book of Job is don't hold to that because that is not how God works. He doesn't work according to the simple view of justice. He works according to the complex view of justice. And we'll go into all that later. But anyways, God wanted to put it upon us, angels and humans, he, he, he uh, a charge to have faith in him, to lean on him to do, to do this good. Um, but that plays out through the love of him and love of others and love of self and with justice and kindness and all that. And then he'll respond with those rewards accordingly. This means in accordance with free will that we must also have the option to not step in, up in obedience and take hold of our moral responsibilities. All this means the possibility or even likelihood of evil and sin existing. Mm-hmm. And so, so I group free will and moral responsibility together that God knew that the, the, the significant free will had to occur, and so he made it limited and irrevocable. And he, <clears throat> he knew that he wanted moral responsibility to occur. He wanted to see if we would step up and do right things. Mm-hmm. And so he had to give us the option of that. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's point five. Yeah, because there's even <laughs> different benefits that we see in stepping up. Because if you have the legitimate option to either not step up and just stand on the sidelines or actually stand up for what's right in the midst of evil, we see different benefits. And that actually leads in pretty well to what the sixth point is. That there's only some things that can actually happen in the midst of evil and sin. So, so this becomes the big one for me. This, mm. this was the the deal maker 
um, that everything began to click for me. Okay. So the sixth one is actually said is so, so, okay. So going back to the points that Connor made that God is loving and good and just and all this kind of thing. So here, here, here's the theory of all this. God has always existed. Whatever that means, we can't wrap our mind around, right? <laughs> so God has always existed. This triune God, father, son, and spirit, whatever that, you know, whatever, however that works. <laughs> um, one day we'll try to unpack that. Maybe I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't want to. I just want to accept it for what it is. But anyways, um, so so he he's totally loving, and so throughout before time, throughout all of existence, the triune God loved himself themselves perfectly, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they realize this love thing is awesome. Right, because we're delighting in each other, we're covenantally committed to each other, we're very, um, you know, we're understanding of each other, we're contributing to each other's well-being. This is phenomenal. We should create a universe and populate it with angels and people and animals and everything, so that we can just share in this love. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 what we want to do is we want to give them all these beneficial goods. So the number one beneficial good is us. Because we are that, that perfect rendition of things. And we just want to hug them and kiss on them and love them, you know, et cetera. Just spend time with them. And so, so, the, so God started creating the concept of the eternal kingdom of heaven. And so in this eternal kingdom of heaven, there was going to be no detrimental evils whatsoever. There was only going to be beneficial goods. And so he started, you know, brainstorming and listing. We're going to have us, right, first and foremost. We're going to have nature. We're going to create this planet with mountains and sunsets and, and, and that kind of thing. We're going to create food, hmm. you know, all these, these great kinds of food, chocolate. Da, da, da. We're going to create puppies. Yes. We're going to create uh, <laughs> uh, something called the sense of humor and laughter, hmm. right? And so we started listing all these beneficial goods. This is going to be a paradise, and we'll have it run forever. And so he's listing all these different beneficial goods. So, so here's the crux of this point. If love desires that others experience beneficial goods, then God, who is all loving, would want us to experience all beneficial goods. Okay? Mm -hmm. I I hold it. It makes sense to me. Um, So in that, as he was listing out all the beneficial goods, a, quote, problem, (laughs) and and it wasn't a problem, but, you know, a a crux occurred, um, of he realized that certain beneficial goods can actually only occur in the midst of evil. So, for example, uh, forgiveness. So, for me to forgive Connor or to be forgiven by Connor, that's actually a beneficial good to my soul. There's something beneficial about me forgiving or being forgiven. But the only way forgiveness can happen is if a wrong occurs. And so, so here in a second, I'm going to go through a bunch more of these. Um, and so the point was, he's like, okay, so I want the beneficial good of forgiveness to occur because I'm all loving. I want them to experience every beneficial good. One of the beneficial goods is forgiveness. So I want them to experience forgiveness. Hmm. Because forgiveness can only occur if there's a wrong or sin. I've already determined that the, the, the eternal kingdom of heaven will have no sin or no evil, which means that they won't experience forgiveness in heaven, in the eternal kingdom. Hmm. So the idea here is, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a temporary broken prologue. And in this temporary broken prologue, I'll give man the significant free will and this moral responsibility, knowing that they're going to choose evil a lot of times. But at least the evil, this goes back to our point in the last session, the evil does create the opportunity for those beneficial goods to occur. Mm -hmm. And so here, so this is another crux point of this. 
the theory would hold that it's more important for a beneficial good to occur than for a detrimental evil to not occur. Now, if you reject that, you're going to reject this whole theory, yeah. right? Yeah. But if you would hold to that, it becomes a, another point to the to the. But but again, it would help better explain. Could you actually say that one more time? It. Yeah, that it, it would be more important for a beneficial good to occur than for a detrimental evil to not occur. Hmm. We don't want the detrimental evil to occur, but even more, we want beneficial goods to occur. So, given hmm. forgiveness and sin, I would rather that the sin occur so that now the forgiveness to, to occur than for the sin to never occur and the forgiveness to never occur. Does this make sense to you guys? Yeah. So, so we end up listing in the study. We, we, start, we start, or let's, let's start listing. Let's start listing some beneficial goods that can only occur in the presence of, of evil or sin. So one is the forgiveness and mercy, and we see this in Psalm 86, 5, 2 Corinthians 2, 6 to 7, James 2, 13. Mm-hmm. Another big one is sacrifice. So if Zach makes a sacrifice for me or Zach sees somebody else make a sacrifice for him, that's a beneficial good. It's a beneficial good to your spirit, to your soul, et cetera, mm-hmm. to make a sacrifice or to let another make a sacrifice for you. Yeah. Um, we see this in Psalm 54, 6, John 15, 13. This is the cross. Mm-hmm. So one of the things was going back to that question of, God, why didn't you just start the first day of heaven? If he started the first day of heaven, no sin would have ever occurred. Therefore, there was no forgiveness. No sacrifice was needed. The cross never would have happened. Hmm. Well, the cross is one of God's greatest displays of love because the perfect. What, what is the perfect example of love? That a man laid down his life for another. Hmm. So God's like, hmm, I want them to experience somebody making a sacrifice for them so that then they can turn around and make sacrifices for others. I want them to see that I'm willing to make a sacrifice for them. I want them to see that I'm willing to die for them. Well, the best way for me to, for, to get them to see that I'm willing to die for them is if I die for them. Hmm. Now, why would I die for them? Well, to atone for the sin, right? And so, so, so sacrifice is a huge one, and forgiveness is a huge one. Another one is growth and transformation. And so this is the idea of moving from A to B, where A is the incomplete, immature version, and B is the complete, mature version. It seems that the actual process of moving from A to B, the journey itself is a beneficial good. So for example, and we're going to go more into this in, in, in a moment, but in heaven will be the perfect, complete versions of ourselves. And so God could have started the first day of heaven and we're all the perfect, complete versions of ourselves. But if that occurred, we never would have actually had the opportunity of the journey, of the transformation, of the growth, of the sanctification. And it seems that that in of itself was a beneficial good. And so God, because God's all loving, he wants us to experience every beneficial good. He wanted us to experience growth and transformation and the journey. The only way we can do that is if he starts us at A, the incomplete version so that we can then move. So this goes back to the Adam and Eve thing that while I believe Adam and Eve were created good, right? That they were created imperfect or incomplete, not because God's some sort of imperfect designer. He absolutely could have started perfect, but God intentionally made Adam and Eve imperfect and incomplete so that they could make that journey Hmm. to the perfection and completion and same for, so for example, I don't hold to, the only reason that the three of us are sinful is because of Adam and Eve. Because I believe God's intent all along was to make you, Connor, and you, Zach, and me, Shannon, and all the listeners, his intent all along was to make all of us that were all born and wired incomplete so that we can make that journey. So I don't hold to if Adam and Eve hadn't screwed up, everything would have been changed. I believe that was part of the plan all along, given all this stuff. 
Um, and so we see in Romans 12, 1 to 2, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Romans 12 to 7, etc. Uh, Romans 6 to uh, 22, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 7. Uh, another one is patience and endurance. It seems that patience and endurance are beneficial goods because it builds character, it makes you stronger, etc. Well, the only way that patience and endurance can happen is through suffering, through lack, through loss, mm-hmm. through trials, through uh, affliction and tribulation. So he's like, man, I really want them to experience patience and endurance. But the only way I can get them to experience that is affliction, suffering. Um, so Psalm one nineteen seventy one Romans five three to five James one two to four, another one is hunger or thirst satisfied. So for example, you're hungry or th- or thirsty, and then you bite into that your favorite meal, or you you drink that big thing of water, and just that satisfaction that comes with that. You never would have experienced that satisfaction or that quenching if you didn't have the hunger and thirst in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so he really wanted us to experience the quenching and the satisfaction. So he has to start with the thirst and the hunger. Uh, or finding through seeking, gaining appreciation. This would kind of go back to the, same, the, 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 the transformation and growing. That it seems that um, appreciation would have to incur not having to really have the appreciation and gratitude. So he had to allow for a not having hmm. so that we could experience appreciation and, and, and gratitude and such. So those examples there, Deuteronomy 4.29, Psalm 52.9, Proverbs 25.2, Ecclesiastes 3.11, Matthew 5.6, Matthew 7.7, 7, John 6.35, Hebrews 12.28, Revelation 7, 16 and 17. Another one is contrast. So the idea here is that white looks so much more whiter when next to black. And so this would be the idea of the glory of God. So, and this would be a, a, a reformed answer. And again, I hold to it that one of the reasons evil and sin exists, why God allowed it, is so that we could better understand his holiness and his perfection. Now, well, I'm going I'm to come back to that point because I, I know there's objections to that. So I'm going to address it. But we do at least want to admit contrast can help. And so seeing the, the evil and, and the good, etc. So Genesis 1, 4, Psalm 18, 28, Isaiah 9, 2, Isaiah 45, 7, John 3, 19, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, 1 Peter 2, 9, 1 John 1, 5. Another one is the victory or triumph of good over evil. So how many books, how many movies, how many bedtime stories uh, is good triumphing over evil? And it seems there's something beneficial with experiencing and watching that occur. And so if, if there was never any evil, we would never see good triumph. Now, good would still exist, but we wouldn't see good triumphing over evil. And so Zephaniah 317, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, 2 Corinthians 214, Revelation 2 to 3. Uh, and then another one, the last one I'll say, is trust slash faith and hope. So faith and trust entail some sort of risk. If there's no risk, you're not really trusting or having faith. Um, and so risk needed to be included in the story, a risk of bad, right, or loss or whatever. And then also hope. Hope is holding on to the positive expectations that are coming, which means those positive expectations haven't been actualized yet. So he had to allow for positive results to not actualize yet so that we could have hope. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 to 9, 1 Timothy 6 to 12, Hebrews 11 to 6. So this is an important point I want to make on this. Any one of these individually probably wouldn't be a sufficient answer. So, for example, when I hear some of my friends say evil exists so that we can better understand God's holiness, I cringe Hmm. when when they state that's the only reason. 
Now, that may be a sufficient enough reason for them. More power to them. Go for it. This is what we said in the study. But it's not going to be sufficient for other people. And for them to say, well, it needs to become sufficient. That's not realistic. And so I have found in any one of these individually, he said, wait, wait, you're saying that God allowed billions of people over thousands of years to sin every day. So the sheer volume of sin, also that one could experience quenching of thirst, or also that one could experience forgiveness. It would seem given the sheer volume of sin and evil and suffering that occurred, any one of these individually wouldn't be worth it. But it's not any one individually. Mm-hmm. <coughs> what do we have there? One, two, three, four, five, six. We have eight right there. And there's sub points on the like. And there, yeah, there's sub points on, under each of these. Um, and so and we have we have other ones listed. And there's probably plenty of other beneficial goods that we ha- aren't even thinking of because mm-hmm. this goes back to the job. Where God was telling Job, God, Job, listen, you weren't there when I created the universe. You weren't there when I did this. You're, you're not more powerful than the behemoth or the Leviathan. You don't understand all this, and I'm not even going to explain it to you. You just need to understand there is a whole bunch going on that you don't understand, and you need to trust me. Yeah. So where Job would say you need to trust God without the details, there are other parts of the Bible that says that doesn't mean you don't need to know the details. So absolutely find some of them, and that's where all these come up. Yeah, and I, for someone that's saying this is not a good plan, like for to have all of this suffering for all of this amount of time, all of these people for so long, this isn't good. And I, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but I I think that if you, it, this comes back to your view of sin. If you're, if you have a <coughs> critical view of sin, that sin is a critical issue, then this does sound like a really pretty bad idea. Right. Because if sin is just this, and again, we don't want to minimize sin and we don't want to say that it's not bad or anything like that because it is serious. But if your view of sin is elevated to the extent that it's crucial, then this doesn't make sense at all. Right. Like, because how in the world could, could getting these beneficial things from sin or having more responsibility or these different points that we've gone through, how does that make up for it? And right. it, it really, if you have a critical view of sin, to be honest, it doesn't. I think that you can make the case that it doesn't make any sense. Um, but if you have a serious view of sin mm-hmm. where uh, because of this last point that we're about to get to because of the cross and atonement and the fact that the sin, uh, this isn't a concern if you're a believer mm-hmm. and an opportunity is provided for everyone, then we can really begin to see how in total, not any one point like you were just saying, but in total this all makes so much more sense and cohesively comes together Mm -hmm. to really present something that's scripturally based and just mentally you can even begin to work through. Yeah. So this brings up a point of who we talking to here, right? Who's our target audience? Because we're listing guys. So if you hold to this and if you hold to this and if you hold to this and if you hold to this, all that combined would help explain. So if if you're one to say, you know, sin is critical, not serious, then we're not really going to persuade you on this. And so for you, it's going to be more of just the mystery answer. It's a mystery why this perfect God allows. And maybe you're comfortable with the mystery. Great. So really our target audience are those believers, well, and probably even non-believers too, but at least are, you know, kind of pursuing God to some extent or curious about it all. They really want to try to wrap their mind because it will help them. Why? How does this good God allow evil and sin? Mm. I want more than just the mystery. I want a little more detail to kind of wrap this around. 
And, and then they start going through all these points and they're like, oh, so I see where significant, limited, irrevocable free will is necessary. Yeah. And I see where God in his goodness wants all these beneficial goods to occur, but some beneficial goods can only occur in the presence of evil, right? And I'm seeing all of these points. It will actually begin to help you understand why mm-hmm. there's evil and sin, right? And so this is this is why I'm so convinced of all that. Yeah, and I think this uh, conversation comes back to something we were saying at the beginning <laughs> that we want to acknowledge our uh, preconceptions walking into this. And what we're trying to do is we are trying to present the way that makes sense coherently with the backgrounds that all of us have and hold pretty similarly. Mm-hmm. And this makes the most sense and still given fits within biblical parameters. and still fits within biblical parameters. And there's other views to answer this question that fit within biblical parameters. Mm-hmm. But we think that the sum total of, uh, interdeterminism, love, justice, all of these different contributing factors, when they come together, if you hold to this view, it actually makes the most sense. And again, we're trying to do this like we've said in other episodes. We're trying to present this humbly, Mm -hmm. um, but also in a way that uh, we do hold to this because we do think that all of this together really does present a pretty compelling case for why evil and sin actually occurs. And if you disagree with one individual point of this, I want to encourage you to not miss the big picture. Not reject all of it, right. Yeah, and so if you maybe one component of uh, the adjectives on uh, free will, if you, let's just say, if you don't like uh, uh, irrevocable, and for some reason you just don't like that one, okay, still consider the rest of this. Because I I just want to, if you are out there and you're trying to wrap your head through all of this, I just really don't want you to miss all of what we're presenting for one right. detail of one part of this. And one quick side note, you just mentioned the the irrevocable part. I meant to mention this earlier. People want to bring up the um, Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart. So our community group, you know, we just we just were going through Exodus, and so we went through all that passages, and we looked at the Hebrew. What were the words? There were several different words that are actually translated hardened in the English. Um, and there are some verses that say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Some say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Some just say his heart was hard. Doesn't say who. Mm-hmm. So we went. We we pulled out some charts and tables from from different software uh, and articles. We looked at everything out. And one of the things that we conclude is that Pharaoh initially chose to harden his heart, and it was his choice to do that. And so God, when He hardened it, He hardened it further. But only after Pharaoh chose to harden it in the first place. Hmm. So there was no revoking of the free will there. Anyways, so going back to the sixth point then, you see all these different examples of God in his love and justice wants us to experience every beneficial good, but some of these beneficial goods can only occur in the midst of evil. So but he didn't he wasn't gonna allow evil in heaven and the, the eternal kingdom. And so he chose to start a temporary prologue that was gonna run for several thousand years that we would think was forever, you know, from yeah. our perspective. Um, but chose to go ahead and allow this temporary prologue of dust creatures and brokenness and all that kind of thing. So, you know, because of the significant limited free will, because of the moral responsibility, and because of these conditional goods. So this this means that God allowed that prologue of incompleteness and sin so that the possibilities of these beneficial goods could occur. For he desired that the eternal kingdom of heaven have no evil sin whatsoever. This way man could still experience every conceivable beneficial good and only experience the requisite evil sin in the prologue. So the idea here being that God says, so I'll create this prologue. This goes back to seven stage journey. I'll create this prologue and this story and I'll have everybody populated in the prologue. 
And as they go through the prologue, there's going to be a bunch of sin, but it gives the opportunities for these specific con- conditional beneficial goods. And then those that believe in me and they confess me as Lord will get into the to the eternal story. And there in the eternal story, they'll get the rest of all the other beneficial goods with no mm-hmm. detrimental. And so they get the best of both worlds, right? So then this leads to the seventh and final point, which is this does create a problem mm-hmm. because it does create sin. So, so given that, you know, given all these points, and so God's concluding, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create this prologue that's going to have all this sin in it, it does create a problem because, as we, we discussed in the last episode, sin creates detriment and prevents certain other beneficial goods. So that's the ironic thing. It allows for certain beneficial goods to occur, but prevents other beneficial goods to occur, right? Mm. Um, so the sin must be addressed, so you can imagine God, as he was planning all this out, was like, okay, so this does seem like the best plan, as messy as it is. It does create the problem of sin, and I do need to address it. We know from Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So we know that when, when this goes back to the justice study and the forgiveness study, we'll go through later, um, but that, that, that sin must be atoned for. Um, and so this leads to the seventh thing where God realizes, okay, so this creates all the sin, and the sin must be atoned for. I could have them do all the atonement on their own. So they need to atone for all the sin they cause. Two problems with that. One, uh, they can't. They can never fully atone for all the sin that they're causing. There would need to be some sort of divine sacrifice to actually create a full, complete atonement. And two, and this is controversial, but I like it. It's not fair because I'm making them incomplete. I'm giving them these dust bodies with this tendency to sin. So for me to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you guys these, these incomplete bodies when you're going to have a tendency towards sin, and then I'm going to make you atone for it. Mm-hmm. it would, so here's the, I like this phrase. The actual just thing to do, the right thing to do, was for him to go ahead and atone for all of it. Because again, a perfect atonement was required. Even if you reject that second little point that I make, it still needs that there needs to be that perfect divine atonement. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is is point seven: God would die and atone for all the sins that man created during this prologue, wiping out their guilt and debt, covering over all their iniquities, except for one sin: the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the rejection of Christ as Lord. And we'll get into that in the next episode when we go through all the sin. So when you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rapid fire a whole bunch of verses here. Genesis 3, 15 and 21, Leviticus 16, 8 to 10, Levi, uh, and 21 and 22, Psalm 103, 1 to 18. That's a big one. Um, mm-hmm. For he was patient. He remembers that we're made of dust. Uh, Isaiah 43, 25, Matthew 12, 20 to 32, Matthew 13, 3 to 9, and 18 to 23, Matthew 26, 27 to 28, Ma- uh, Mark 3, 28 to 29, Luke 12, 8 to 10, John 3, 16 to 18, John 19, 30, Romans 3, 23 to 26, Romans 5, 6 to 21, Romans 10, 9 to 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6, Hebrews 9, 22, Hebrews 10, 4 to 27, long chapter there, mm-hmm. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, James 5, 19 to 20, 1 John 2, 1 to 2, 1 John 5, 16, Revelation 5, 6 and 12, Revelation 21, 7 to 8, Revelation 22, 14 to 15. These are all different passages touching on this, that God came to atone for the sins of the world. So all of this, to me, makes this complete picture mm-hmm. that he knew that he needed to create the prologue, given all these things, and the prologue was going to result in a bunch of sin, and the sin needed to be dealt with, and so he chose to dealt for, dealt, deal with it on his own because it needed to be him, not not us humans. Um, and so the idea here, um, 
well, I'm just going to read this. Thus, if true, we see that God purposefully, uh, so here, here, here's, here's how it all kind of culminates. If true, we see that God purposefully created a broken prologue with broken, incomplete people, knowing that sin would abound, allowing it because of the beneficial goods that would come from it and because of the need of, of significant free will and moral responsibility, and his grace would abound more, atoning for all the sins committed except for the rejection of Christ as Lord. So this would imply that sinners are thrown into the lake of fire, not because of their many sins, but because of their disbelief in Christ. As it is faith in Christ that gets you into heaven, is a lack of faith in Christ that keeps you out. So this gets to, I lean towards that he actually atoned for all sins of all people except the rejection of him. So, so I'm leaning towards, and I have verses that then make me rethink it, but I'm leaning towards at judgment day, you're not thrown into the lake of fire because of all these sins you did, because all those sins were actually atoned for. You're thrown into the lake of fire because you rejected him as king and master and Lord, so you can't go into his kingdom. Um, and so the Catholic concept of Felix Culpa, which is Latin for fortunate fall, touches on this, that it was actually fortunate that the fall occurred so that all those beneficial goods could now arise. Hmm. Um, and so this was actually, this one I was just mentioning, this was actually the just thing to do. Justice means the making of things right. So because he's a just God, he made things right by showing mercy to us, by forgiving us our sins, releasing himself of any anger or resentment, and releasing us of any obligation of a pen- penance or to because he was atoning for our sins, compensating and paying the debt created um, uh, that we created by divinely dying as a human, uh, taking you know, the incarnation. We therefore no longer have a debt before God, and thus if we choose to believe in Jesus and place our faith in him as Lord, we get to spend eternity with him. And those who believe and also intentionally and consistently pursue good and obedience on, on top of all that will be rewarded heavily. Hmm. Okay. Um, anyways, so that's, that's the theory. What are you guys' thoughts on that? We got a little bit more to add, but just what are you guys thinking right now? Or what do you think listeners are thinking? <laughs> yeah, I think that one thing the listeners are probably thinking is, wow, that's a lot of information, yeah. um, which we do recognize. And that's why we really wanted to split this up and make this conversation its own uh, sub-episode or whatever we're calling these. Um, because there is a lot here. But again, like I've been saying, I really do think that this makes the most sense of what we see in scripture because if god did actually create um the world so that we could see certain beneficial goods and he wanted us to have moral responsibility wanted us to have uh significant irrevocable uh limited free will i said that in the wrong order (laughs) sorry um but all of those different components because he saw value in them and he wanted us to be able to legitimately show love and affection and uh, all of these other good things to other people of our own free choice, then I think this last point just becomes so crucial and it impacts uh, my theology and I think all of our theologies in such a deep way because if God, if this is the way that God laid it out, I think that the logical conclusion would have to be that God did actually atone for the sins of the whole world. Because if you start getting into theological systems where um, God only died for some sins or for some people, Mm -hmm. uh, more of a reformed perspective and different things like that, it 
complicates this to a degree that I just don't think is necessary. Right. As you look through scripture, um, there are passages that talk about uh, God not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance and all these different things. And just what you were just laying out, if all of these things are true and all of these things leading up to this conclusion are true, then it would seem the atonement would have to cover everyone. Mm. And that makes sense why God would allow any of this in the first place, because he's made up for it already. Uh, which this all comes full circle back to the serious first critical thing that we were talking about earlier, uh, that it is only a serious issue because it's already been atoned for, which again doesn't mean we should just live in sin and do whatever we want because we should be pursuing the beneficial things. Um, so really, I just, when you presented this to me for the first time and we were going through this in the group, I was just really struck by how comprehensive this is and how cohesive it is with uh, the different views of Scripture that I held. Yeah. Yeah, Connor, what were your thoughts when we were going through this study and all this stuff was getting presented? Um, well, a lot of it is in agreement with what uh, both of y'all have just been talking about. But um, I don't know. When, when I look at I think some of it is kind of a picture of because I also had a lot of the same uh, kind of questions about, you know, these are these gaps in what, um, like in those why questions. So especially like the example with Adam and Eve, why, why were they created that way? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, like with this, um, potential, you know, potential to sin. Yeah. And, um, that's something that's, you know, just kind of bugged me about the different things that, you know, as I'm looking at different stories and seeing different attributes of God and then how that corresponds with, you know, how the world was created and how we were created. Um, and so to come back and, and kind of, I mean, as we said before, you know, this, this builds and kind of connects with all these different um, ideas that we've looked at and different principles on love and um, justice, especially, um, and how that, as it's all coming together, um, it, like it makes sense. And these answers, those questions, and still stays within the biblical parameters. Yeah. Um, and so definitely something, you know, to to dig deep into and look at these scriptural references um, mm -hmm. and to, you know, search certain, I and mean, that's kind of what I had to do. Cause you know, you're telling me this and it's in contrast to what I was taught or right. what I heard. And so I want to go and dig deep into that mm -hmm. and really understand like, you know, where's this different perspective coming from if I wasn't taught that. Yeah. So it's really refreshing to have another perspective on it and one that really, really makes sense and kind of aligns with the, my thoughts on it. Yeah. And so for you, the listener, um, Keep in mind that I have been wrestling with this issue like and trying to investigate all this for probably eight to ten years now. And then a year ago, we did the unpacking of good and evil and suffering over a total of, of was that, four, 12, 16 weeks. Uh, so four months. And each week we're going through all these verses. And so, so I had spent several years wrestling through this. And then we spent a good four months as a group talking it out each Tuesday mm -hmm. and going through all the verses. We had time to chew on it. And we had done other unpackings that yep. were, were backing yep. us up, et cetera. So we're taking all these things that we spent weeks, months, years, 2,400 verses. We're taking all this stuff and we're presenting it to you guys in six episodes that total four to six hours. So we realize that we're dumping a whole bunch of stuff on you and we're not really expecting you just to automatically buy into that. Cause we even had a couple people who at first rejected it and then they kept chewing on it, chewing on it, eventually came around to it. Right. So, so we know that, we're, that patience is required here. Um, and so this is like Zach said, this is a lot of, of stuff. 
and and it's a little bit hard for us just to present the whole result knowing that you most of you are not just going to accept it uh, most of you are going to need to chew on it for some time. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is don't think that we're just trying to persuade you right now. Hey, you need to believe this. Yeah. What we're doing is we're presenting to you many years of all this research and wrestling. We're presenting to you one concise, explanation, comprehensive explanation of all of it that over the next, you know, uh, we're recording here in 2017, over the next couple of years of you listening to this, or this is way down the road you're listening to this, is you can come back to this. And you can come back to these points. And just let yourself be persuaded as you're persuaded, right? Um, and so so we, we, we want to acknowledge that, that this is, this is probably going to take some time, but it is very rewarding. Yeah, and in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul's talking to the, thir- uh, to the church in Thessalonica, and he tells them to test everything that they hear and hold on to what's good. And so we, I think all of us uh, yeah. would have the test perspective us. that we want you to look into scripture and see if these things are actually accurate because we've all done uh an extensive amount of studying into this and we know that a lot of intelligent people have come to different conclusions Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but what we would really challenge you guys to do is not dismiss what you hear based off of what you've already assumed right because it's different yeah because oh i i haven't heard that before so it's probably just wrong uh because otherwise i would have heard it before well not necessarily uh, so be willing to actually pour over scripture, take a look at these different verses and see if these concepts actually do make sense with the narrative of scripture that you see. And, and the, so this theory is not new. All of these individual points, other people have referenced in other books, other scripture, etc. It's just, we're taking all of them and try to compiling them into one place, and it paints a really cool picture. Mm-hmm. So maybe the compilation of all these points is new, but the points themselves aren't new. They've been around for a long time. So with that, then, we want to <coughs> add a couple little points, some of the practicality. So, so, it, so we're going to assume from this point forward this theory. Okay. So given that, we wanted to add, so why do we sin? Because um, we, we, we've just discussed why God allowed sin. Um, given all of the, all of these things that the, that the that that the prologue was necessary, we're going to come back to that in a second. Um, but so so okay, so given that why why God allowed it, why is why is it a part of existence? Can we can we elaborate a little bit on why specifically do we humans sin so much? So we're just going to do just a couple of points here. We're going to rapid fire. So we have we have four points here, and wh- why do humans commit evil and sin? Point number one is it's part of the prologue purpose, everything that we were just discussing. So because of the need for irrevocable, limited, significant free will, and because of the need for moral responsibility, and because of the need of those certain beneficial goods to occur that can only occur in the midst of evil, um, that it was just, it's part of the prologue Mm -hmm. story. That's one point. Uh, Point number two is we are made of dust and flesh with inherent worth and goodness but also with an inclination towards evil. And some of those verses, let me rapid fire for you. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Genesis 6, 3 through 5, 8, 8, 21. Uh, Psalm 51, 5. Psalm 103, 14. Ecclesiastes 7, 29. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 7, 9. Um, Matthew 15, 17 through 20. Matthew 26, 41. Romans 6 and 8 through 8. Uh, Galatians 5 and 6. Hebrews 12.1, and James 1.13-15. And so just real point on that with the Psalm 103. 
He is patient with us for he remembers that we're made of dust. So this second point that Connor made is, is a big one for me is that you, all of us, you listeners, us here, we're all made of dust. Hmm. We all have that flesh. So we all have that tendency towards sin. And we're, and we're going to elaborate on more on that um, in, a, in, a, in a moment here. But, but I just want, I want to reiterate that. Yeah, and, and with that with that point, um, with point number two, and that's something that we've discussed a lot in some of the unpackings, but like God, like God's aware of that. And right. so he, like kind of when we're discussing of like, you know, him creating us and, and you know, providing the opportunity um, to sin, like he's, like these are some of the things that he's aware of and that's, and we, there's a lot of biblical passages that yeah, show a lot. that. He knows that we have he that bent. That, yeah. Yeah. The third point here is that there is an enemy and he's out there. He's trying to tempt us and he wants us to fall. We see that in Genesis 3, uh, Genesis 4, 7, Matthew 4, and 1 Peter 5, 8. And so that just makes it worse, right? Yeah. So one, it's part of the prologue story. Mm-hmm. Two, um, we're made of dust, so we just have that inclination. Three, we have an enemy just stirring, yeah. stirring the, the hornet's Actively nest, working. To... Right, actively working to make that worse. Mm-hmm. And then fourth was the one we mentioned in, in the last episode. While it is detrimental to ours and others' well-being, it is pleasing. Um, and so uh, Galatians 6, 7 to 8, 1 Timothy 5, 6, 2 Thessalonians 2, 12, Titus 3, 3, Hebrews 11, 24 to 26, 1 John 2 to 16, uh, or 2, 16, would all reference that, you know, that there is some pleasure to sin, which is why, why people pursue it. So, so those are the four points. The other thing that we wanted to mention uh, here that kind of goes with all this is we wanted to give like another analogy or another breakdown. And I remember, Zach, when we first did this, yeah. like you just saying, wow, this is this really, 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 really like helpful. This. So... This 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 comes back. We discussed this in the maturity episode uh, earlier earlier in the season, so you can go back and listen to this. This mainly comes from Matthew thirteen, Romans five to eight, Galatians five to six, and First Corinthians chapters three and fifteen. So the whole point of this, going back to the maturity study, is that it seems that um, there are kind of three stages in this life. There are non-believers, which we all start out as. And then there's the immature believer. So this will go back to boat riding in the seven-stage journey. And then there's mature believers, which is the water walking in the seven-stage journey. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these references in Scripture. There's those that, um, there's those that take their talents and throw them away and, do not, and reject them. There's those that take their talents and put it in the bank just to earn interest. And then there's those that take their talents and actually invest them and get a much greater return on, 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 their, or, yeah, return on their investment. <clears throat> there are... Those that don't build on a foundation of Jesus. There's those that build on the foundation of Jesus and then add wood, hay, straw to it. And there's those that build on the foundation of Jesus and add gold, silver, costly stones, 1 Corinthians 3. Um, there are, um, there's the evil sinful. This is Romans 5. The evil sinful. There's the just or righteous, which is kind of the zero balance. The first one's negative balance. And then there's the good people. Those are the positive balance. <clears throat> you also have the parable of the seed. So there's those that never take root. Those that take root and keep the root, but are choked by the weeds, and then those that take root and become fruitful, right? So, all, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> all throughout Scripture, we keep seeing, especially the New Testament, we keep well, actually old too. We keep seeing this pattern of there's like the non-believers, right? How we all start, and then there's that initial where you become a believer, but you're still raw, you're still immature and young, mm-hmm. and then there's the maturing stage. So, with that, with that in mind. <coughs> We can draw a picture, and so because these are podcasts, <coughs> man, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to describe this to you in a visual setting, mm-hmm. and so if you're listening, you can take notes. Here's what I want you to do. So I, when I draw this out on a whiteboard, I draw stick figures because that's as far as my artistic nature can go. 
So you want to draw four stick figures. Um, and so and draw them a little bit spaced apart. So just just the same. Here's your four stick figures. On the stick figure on the left. Um, now I like the color code, mm-hmm. so I might draw the stick figures just in, in black. Um, <coughs> then I draw uh, a, a circle, and I draw a brown circle right around the stick figure. So mm-hmm. so the stick figure completely makes up that that the, it was completely fits within the circle. Then the second stick figure. I draw basically two parentheses in brown. So it's like the circle's been broken, but yep. still right around them. Um, and then in the third stick figure, um, I draw two parentheses, but I draw them as dotted lines. And so it's broken up. Um, another way, thank you. Another way that um, you can do this is like with a coat. So imagine like there's a muddy brown coat. So the first person has the coat all around them. Mm-hmm. The second one, the coat is more loosely kind of hanging on them. And the third coat has actually begun to like dissolve and disintegrate, though it's still there. Then you're going to draw a slash line that separates the fourth stick figure. And in the fourth stick figure, you actually draw a purple uh, circle uh, around that one. So it's a whole new thing. So these are those four stages. The first three stages are just what we reference in the, the non-believer that we all start off with, and then you become a believer, and then you become a mature believer. And then the fourth stage <coughs> is that <coughs> is that new body and, and have the heavenly body that we get, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that you're going to do in this drawing is with the first fi- stick figure, you're going to put a little G, which represents God, like above and to the left, kind of like coming down in and pursuing that individual. In the second picture with the parentheses, you're going to put a G down like towards the bottom of the stick figure, like kind of right behind them, like, like kind of hanging out next to them. Mm-hmm. And then in the third one, you're going to put the G right above their head as like kind of a headship over them. And then in the fourth one, same thing. The G is, is the head over. Of course, the G represents God. So what we're going to do, so this, this is the visual representation of these stages. So this is still explaining why do we sin? Why do Christians still sin? Why do mature Christians still sin? Right? Because the next episode we're going to get into all the different sins. Mm-hmm. So the idea here, uh, I'll explain each of this now. In that first stage, so the brown circle represents your flesh. And so every human is made with the flesh, with that dust nature, right? That, that sinful nature. It's just a part of who you are. So of course you're going to sin, right? Because it's part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And God's, but God's pursuing you. God pursues everybody. So then that second stick figure is the person who's now accepted Jesus, right? So God has come into their life. God is now dwelling within. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within them. And so now God resides within them. And so when Paul talks about, like, we're now dead to sin, there's different theories on, on what that means. But my theory is your sinful nature, you still have it. Because Romans 6 to 8, Paul says, what I don't want to do, I still do. What I do want to do, I don't do, you know, et cetera. So, but but the sinful nature has been broken. So, as a as a as a new Christian, or it could be an old Christian, you're still just immature, right? So, as a boat rider, um, you still have sinful tendencies. Now, when, so when it says that that we're dead to sin, it means that there's no longer any death coming to us, right? That's why we crossed that line out in the last study. Um, that death is no longer a consequence because Christ has now atoned for those sins. So, so you as a believer are still going to sin because you still have that sinful nature. Hopefully you're sinning less 
than you were in the non-believer stage because the sin has now kind of been busted, right? It's why it's, it's, why it's, the, it's the parentheses around you. I do know non-Christians that sin less than Christians, hmm. um, so it doesn't always play out that way. But that's the general idea of now that power of sin has been broken, and you now have God residing within you, so you can begin to recognize sin for what it is and begin to resist it. Then you move to the third stick figure, and so here God is, is right above you. So this is all about Galatians 5, where Paul says, Now that we have life in the Spirit, let us be led by the Spirit. That's later on in the, in the chapter, and in, in verse 16 he says um, that if you walk in step with the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Second mm-hmm. Peter 1 also says, you know, add to your faith, goodness, goodness, knowledge, and it goes through the whole list, and it says in verse 10 there, if you do these things, you will never stumble. So that third stage represents the water walking, you trying to mature in your faith, leaning more on God, letting God lead more in the moment, um, applying the details of the Bible to the details of your life. And as you begin to do that, that flesh nature, you still have. You will always have that flesh nature this side of the gates. But it starts to break up even more and starts to have even less influence over you. Um, and so that's why you sin less because it's, it's becoming, it's disintegrating. And so that, so we, we, and then, and then eventually you cross that slash line, which is, uh, into eternal life and eternal life. You no longer have that dust nature. You now have that new nature, the, the purple nature, um, with God residing over you. And so because of that, you're not going to sin at all. Right. So that's the visual. So under the visual, um, we put a chart together. And so we're going to read through this chart. I think we so we have we have you have your four stick figures. So imagine four columns under the stick figure there. One being just the natural initial state uh, as non-believer. The second column being the believer. The third column being the mature maturing or sanctifying. Right? Because you never reach there. You're always moving. But the maturing and sanctifying believer. And then the fourth is the eternal kingdom believer. Right? So we've got <coughs> looks like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven or eight lines here. We're just going to read through these lines. And so like if you create a table, um, we're going to go across through each of the columns and then down to the next line. And so we'll just let's just explain this and, and, and then we'll read it off to you guys. Um, and then once it's read, then you can look at the chart. So first column, first line um, is you have, so, so when you're born and when you're still in that non-believer state, you do have that, that irrevocable, significant, limited free will and moral responsibility. And as a believer, you also still have the irrevocable... Um, I forgot what the S significant, significant limited, limited free will and responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then as a maturing believer, you also have the irrevocable, significant, limited free will and moral responsibility. And then, oh yeah, yeah we're going to stop there. So that, that's in this life. Then we'll explain at the end of the fourth column. Yeah. So, so in all three stages, doesn't change. Mm-hmm. All three stages, you have the, the irrevocable, limited, significant free will and moral responsibility. Now, <clears throat> when you're in the initial stage, you have a weak natural body. Yeah, and so in the second line, um, also for the believer, you have a weak natural body. And as a maturing believer, you also have a weak natural body. So again, that doesn't change. Same in all, in all three columns there. Um, in the first column, and when you're in the first stage of life, you do not have the foundation of Jesus. As a believer, your foundation is on Christ, though. Mm-hmm. And as a maturing believer, your foundation is on Christ. So there, there is a change now. Now, now the second and third stage mm-hmm. are the same. No difference between those two, but they're different from the first one. Um, in the first stage, you're being pursued by the Holy Spirit. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And as a maturing believer, you're actually being led by the Holy Spirit. So here we see a difference in each of the three columns. 
Um, in the first stage, as a non-believer, you're inclined to sin. As a believer, you're still inclined to sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a maturing believer, you're actually starting to begin to be inclined to obey. So the change actually happens between the second and third stage. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, in the first stage, you have evil and temptation all around you. As a believer, you still have evil and temptations around you. And as a maturing believer, you have evil and temptation all around you. <clears throat> and so another name that we can use for the um, first column is you're still lost. And then as a believer, you're you're righteous. And as a maturing believer, you're good. So you're actively, actively doing things. Contributing, yeah. And contributing to other people's well-being. So going back to the um, some of the, the passages, um, if you're in that first stage still, you're that seed that never took root. Yep. And then as a believer, um, the seed's rooted, um, but it could be choked out on some of the passages, milk, wood, hay, straw. Yeah. Uh, we go ahead and go yeah, yeah. So it's it's you're you're the seed that is now rooted but choked. You're yeah. drinking milk and you're building with wood, hay, straw. As compared to a maturing believer, you your seed has been rooted and it's fruitful, and uh, you're more Paul would say on solid food. And yeah, you're building from the milk to the solid food. Yeah, and then you're building with gold, silver, and costly stones. And so what all this means is in that first stage, you are a mix of good and evil, and you're unforgiven at this point. And in the second stage, you're still a mix of good and evil, um, but you're forgiven. While in the maturing stage, you're more good than evil, although there is still that balance fighting so, right. like we've talked about. Battle, yeah. um, uh, but you are also forgiven. So those three columns help explain kind of how life plays out. Knowing that if you do believe in Jesus and you make him your king, you're going <clears> to <throat> get to heaven. And in the eternal kingdom... You are still going to have your irrevocable, significant, limited free will and moral responsibility. Um, you'll be imperishable. You'll have a spiritual body instead of a physical body. So that's a massive change. Yeah, your foundation will still be on Christ. And you'll still be led by the Holy Spirit. Um, you'll be inclined to obey. And uh, in heaven, there's not going to be any evil or temptation. And then you have all the appropriate rewards depending on what you did in the first life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here, all good, no evil. So this may be a little confusing as we verbalize this, but if you're looking at the chart, um, it helps explain kind of the different stages and why still believers can sin. Zach, what were your thoughts when we, when we first, why, why was it that you liked this? Yeah, I think one of the main things that I really liked about this was it put to words a lot of the concepts that I've heard before, because I've heard um, once you're in Christ, you're a new creation and all these different things and uh, be led by the spirit. And so seeing this progression of when you're just born, you have the inclination, you're being pursued or inclination to sin. You're being pursued by the Holy Spirit. And then you actually, you have the Holy Spirit. Once you're saved, you set your foundation on Christ. And then as you mature, you're actually being led by the spirit. And so just seeing that progression, I really liked. I also um, appreciated the drawing that you did mm-hmm. with the, um, it's a solid circle when you're an uh, unbeliever, but then it starts fragmenting and then it starts breaking apart even more right. as you mature. And so I, just that word picture I really like. And that actually uh, reminds me of another analogy 
that I think is closely related that I can wait a little bit on or share now, depending on what you want. Um, and so I remember hearing uh, that elephants, so this is another um, <coughs> analogy to help you understand why believers still sin as they're maturing. Um, and it, like, especially in those initial stages, because uh, I've heard that elephants, when they are first born, and they're born into captivity, then I think that when elephants are born into captivity, what they do is they'll take a big metal chain and they'll wrap it around their leg and they'll uh, basically just tie them up. And what the baby elephant will do is it will just fight against it. It'll pull, it'll tug, it'll try so hard to get out of that and begin to move that um, it eventually gives up after months and years in this whole long process because it's tried so hard to break free and get out. And so what they actually do to adult elephants that they have in captivity is all they have to do is tie a string around the elephant's leg Mm -hmm. and it won't move a muscle. Because what it's done is it's learned that it doesn't have the power to break against something on its back leg, so it's not even going to try. And I feel like a lot of times that's what we do as believers. We're so used to being an unbeliever and trying to fight against sin, trying to do the right thing, um, doing all that, but having the inclination and not being led by the Spirit. And so we try. you've tried to fight against it, and it mm-hmm. hasn't worked. And so then by the time we become believers and we're actually free from the power of sin— not the presence of sin, but the power of sin. It's just a string around our leg, but we think, oh, I can't fight this. I, I have to just keep doing it. And we fail to recognize that we're not under the power of sin anymore. And I know even as I say that, like that's a whole lot easier said than done. Like, oh, we'll just recognize that you're not under the power of sin anymore and you don't have to because um, God will always provide a way out when you're tempted and all this other stuff. Like that's really, really hard to do at a practical level mm-hmm. from on a day-to-day basis, but it is true. And if you begin to have that perspective that this drawing really illustrates that the power of the flesh is broken and it's fragmenting as you mature. I just really like that word yeah, picture as we went through that. It's good. And, and like, like you're saying, Zach, I think a really um, good point that I want to reiterate that goes along with that. And as we're talking about believers maturing and, and and the power of sin not being as like over them um, is is how we view sin and we talked about this already but the critical versus serious and so we don't have to view sin as critical because Christ has already died for mm, us that's good and so um, sin is now just a serious issue and so that changes our perspective on it that puts us in the right uh, frame of mind uh, of heart to really address sin um, practically um, to take application from what that means and be able to resist future sin and yeah. so i think as we're looking especially kind of the transformation of the um the diagram that you you kind of word draw um <laughs> but just as as believers are maturing i think having this perspective on critical versus serious really allows for that transformation so. yeah it's funny because again when we first make a statement like sin is now a serious issue not a critical you get pushback but then we keep bringing up all these points and a lot of people in the study just started to get persuaded of that, right? Mm-hmm. It just started to make sense the more you kind of thought through it all. So let me take all of that and, and wrap it up into this statement um, this, with this whole theory. What, what, what would be like a one-sentence summary of this theory? Given, that, given the full story that God wanted to tell, sin was necessary. 
Yeah, <laughs> mic drop, right? That's what Connor just did. Uh, what do you guys think about that? I think that if you somehow managed to start this podcast right when you said that statement, there would be immediate pushback. And uh, I feel like if that's all you've heard, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then immediately it's just like, well, no, that doesn't really make sense. But when you put it in the context of this whole discussion, however long it's been, um, it really begins, you begin to see the picture that I think really the Bible paints. Um, that all of these things do contribute to this, and it seems it seems really counterintuitive to have sin and have that actually be a part of the full story that God wanted to tell. But when you put it in context with all these different ideas, I really think that it makes a lot of sense, even though I completely understand that a lot of people will have pushback. Yeah, and you mentioned um, before the recording that this actually is a reformed way of thinking. So in that sense, I would actually agree with the reform because they would say something like this. It's just we're trying to unpack it and actually get to the details of not just making a general universal statement of that, but trying to actually break down what it is. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, Connor? Um, yeah, I think kind of what Zach is saying, like this is a statement that if taken at face value definitely would receive a lot of pushback. And I think... Um, and I think that is kind of like the purpose of that statement is that it's addressing um, key things that like the the critical issue of sin and, mm-hmm. and certain perspectives that people have held on sin. But one thing I really like about it is that um, and kind of even more kind of going in depth to it is, you know, the full story of God isn't about sin. That was right. That's part of it to get to it's to his love, it. to get to all these other beneficial good things. And that overpowers that. um that's like the bigger part of the story. Mm-hmm. And so this is a small part that we get hung up on. And so this is why this is an impactful statement because mm-hmm. it goes against all these different perspectives that we've had in the past. Yeah. Um, but to then to know that the actual focus is on the rest of the story. Right. Um, I don't know. I think I really, I really like that part of it. That's huge because another way that I, so the, you know, the statement again is given, <clears throat> given the full story, man, given the full story that God wants to tell, um, sin was necessary. Another way to say this is, uh, and I and I believe this now, sin is a secondary issue. Now people start to flip out. When I say secondary, I'm not hmm. saying it's not important. It is important, but it's not the primary point of the story. The primary point of the story is love, which goes back to the whole love study that we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that God wants this companionship, this camaraderie, this community. That's the whole point of it all. And love, and again, love is that, creating of beneficial well-being so love is the primary point of all of the story that god's trying to tell with that then comes the issue of sin right so to me it's still a secondary point and i found it goes back to this this has actually allowed me to create a healthier way of of viewing life and things and it's actually allowed me to decrease the sin in my life so anybody that's nervous that us using this kind of language we're starting to condone sin or we're not coming down on sin as hard as we could no actually Ironically, it actually helps decrease the sin in your life, right? Go ahead. And it's interesting. If you are a true believer, I really think that you'll have a similar experience to what we've had, that this will actually decrease the amount of sin in your life. Because when you see this full picture, I think it makes a whole lot more sense. Um, But I think that if you are just in Christianity to check off lists or do Mm -hmm. rules or do certain things or not do certain things and you're not actually focused on the relationship with Christ, which really is the essence of the gospel. Right. Um, 
if that's not if Christ is not your focus and that's not your focus, then I feel like this will give you a license to sin. And if your perspective is I need to follow the list, I need to do this or not do this, do this, not do this. Um, this one's not as bad as that one, so this one's okay. This one, eh, we'll see. Uh, if that's your perspective, then I guess sure. Like right, right, right. This won't motivate you to stop because that's not actually the focus of the gospel. The focus of the gospel isn't us. It's not our sin. It's on Christ and what he's done for us. And if that's your focus, I think that it's so much harder to say, no, this is a license for me to sin because you see the full picture of what it actually is. So this is a spectrum issue. So you need to go back to season Mm -hmm. one and listen to the spectrum lens that kind of explain all that. But it's the idea of um, there's the extremes and there's that moderate kind of balanced, temperate, complex nuanced middle and it seems that the answer is usually there in the middle and so what happens is we see people start moving to the left in a liberal way for a license to sin or a condoning of sins not a problem whatever and so the natural human response is to go to the opposite extreme to counter that which is legalism Mm -hmm. which, which is criticalness of sin and so one of the things that we're doing here it's a spectrum thing is that we're rejecting the liberal license to sin. We're also rejecting the legalism and the criticalness of sin. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get where would the Bible seem to paint this picture? That it is a serious issue, that there are, you know, there's detriment that comes from this, you know, et cetera. Um, But it is atoned for. Mm -hmm. And we need to have both those truths. And so one of the things for me is when you, and this will get into the other episodes, uh, sub-episodes with the responses to sin, when you start to find this balance um, the, the balance of the tension, et cetera, of this sin does cause problems. It prevents benefit and it causes detriment. And it's also already atoned for and taken care of. The more you can begin to embrace both those, the more you're going to be in a really good spot with all that. Right. Um, so the last thing, and we've kind of been touching on this is just getting into the application is encouraging you why you would hold to this. And so, for me, um, one of them is there's just a lot of comfort and relaxation, and this goes back to the uh, bomb diffuser. You need to be calm mm-hmm. in that situation. I beat myself up all the time um, and, and, and really you know, ride myself for the sin that I do, and I'm, I'm moving away from that, and this will get more of the response stuff later. But I like using the term, so I'm a, you know, I'm a PS4 gamer guy, uh, and so you get your video games and you get your, the beta version and et cetera. When I have be, the more that I've come to grips with this whole issue of this prologue, this broken prologue that we're in, it's the dress rehearsal before the play, it's the scrimmage before the game, it's the beta version. And the whole point of a beta version of video games is to work the kinks out. And yes, God could have created the perfect video game right from the front. And we're humans, you have to create the beta version because you can't just create a perfect video game. God is perfect. So he could have created a perfect video game right up front and life just play out awesomely perfectly, which it will in heaven. We do have that perfect video game coming. Um, But he purposefully created a broken beta version of life so that all this stuff could occur and all these beneficial goods and all that kind of thing. And so going with that concept, with the Psalm 103 that we're made of dust, it has allowed me to calm down a little bit. 
I'm not condoning my sin. I'm recognizing the wrongness of sin. I'm recognizing that it's turning away from God and his beneficial goods and turning to something else. And that something else that I'm turning to is outside of his parameters. It causes pleasure, yes, but it also causes detriment and it prevents beneficial goods. I am clearly recognizing the wrongness of sin, and I don't want it because I don't want that detriment for me or others, and I don't want that beneficial good prevented for me or others. So I don't want sin. But I'm also willing to recognize we're in the beta version. I'm made of dust. It's part of the story. Um, and so there again, it's, there's that tension. And, and so it has allowed me to calm down a little bit, to be less judging of myself and condemning of myself, to be less judging of others and condemning of others, and understand that it is part of the beta broken prologue that we're in. We're in the beta life. We're working the bugs out. And so, so all, you have to hold to the tension. If you can't hold to the tension, you either move to one of those extremes. Just kind of what you were saying, Zach. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the applications, practical applications of all this is rethinking this and trying to see more clearly what's really going on. And it has calmed me down. And in that calm state, I'm allowed to be more wise in my resistance of sin. I don't know if you guys have any application you would like to, to add to that. Not really. I mean, really, because... I feel like if I start saying application, I'm going to say a lot of what I already have said right. or what we're going to talk about in your response to sin. Um, but I really do think that this has just helped me understand much more clearly because um, one of the issues that I struggled with a lot with Christianity was the atonement and the extent of the atonement because mm. I've heard the conversation so many different times, so many different ways who did Christ actually die for? What sins are actually covered? And that whole concept. And I think that just the cohesiveness of this whole uh, approach and saying that, yes, he actually did die for everyone. And he did he did allow sin initially, but he died for everyone to, to provide it. every... Like, sin is just off the table, so we can actually just focus on Christ. And it makes it... Uh, it impacts our response to sin so much. And it just all of the things leading up to it. It's just so your view of this question is so impactful for all of the different aspects right. of your theology. And we're going to go more into atonement and forgiveness in a couple of the other sub episodes and the God's response and our response. And then also when we do the unpacking on forgiveness and the mercy, we're, we're going to go through more of that and help explain all that. So that's one of the tough things is we want, you know, we could spend 10, 20 hours on this, but we have to break it up in the, in these different unpackings and, 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 and trust in that. Um, and so that we'll, we'll wrap up with that. And the last thing I'll say, because this is, you know, this was this, this episode, here's a big one, right? Remember Sarah's point in the heaven study where she said, you know, cause we kept going back for all these details and, 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 and Sarah made a great point. She said, guys, if all these details are starting to overwhelm you and confuse you and kind of paralyze you look past them. Cause we were, cause we were getting, it was the parts about what happens when you die and all these different things. Yeah, yeah. So she said, look past that and just get to the point you need to get to. And you've mentioned this before and some of the other controversial things that we've said. So what we want you to listener to know is if this third episode here on our theory, um, compiled theory onto why God allows suffering evil is still just striking a bad nerve with you and you're not liking it and you're just not there. That's fine. Right. It doesn't mean that you're not a believer. Or we're not a believer. That's fine. Run with, you know, just, just, just ignore this one 
or be willing to come back to it later. But don't let that, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Uh, and so don't, don't let that affect the first two episodes on what exactly is sin biblically and what does it result in. And don't let it affect these next three episodes on what are the specific sins, how does God respond to those sins, and how are we to respond to those sins. Mm-hmm. You can still not hold to this and still hold to the other elements, right? Um, so, so I just want to throw that out there. So that's it. So, so we're done now. The next episode, which is episode D, 3.11D, is going to be actually going through. So what are the specific sins um, listed out in Scripture? And this is very, very eye-opening as you go through that. So as always, thank you for listening. If you do have questions on any of this or you want to discuss it more, you can email us at info at rekindlingministries.com or you can go to the website, rekindlingministries.org. We're also developing an app um, on on, uh, Band. Um, so you can you can look for that as well. Um, but anyway, so so we will see you guys for the next episode.